This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. And thank you, Roger. Good morning to you. Good morning, world. As once again, we come your way with our weekly Saturday morning show talking about the most important industry on the planet, producing food to feed all of us. And we talk agriculture, but everything else that's associated with agriculture. And it's county fair time and state fair time before you know it. And uh, as a matter of fact, coming up this morning, we're going to talk to a young lady, a member of 4-H in Lake County, about the importance of county fairs to young people to... 4-H club members, FFA members, so stay with us for that. Jim Fazell standing by to join us to talk gardening this morning. And then, of course, we'll talk markets as Max Armstrong checks in this morning with Rich Nelson of Allendale, and uh, we'll get the BASF weekly crop report. So a lot going on here on the Saturday morning show, and um, we'll continue with Jim Fazell. So stand by. We say good morning to Jim Fazell, and something unusual has happened, Jim. I don't think I've had a drop of rain for maybe four days in my yard. What's going on? Uh, it's really amazing because after all that rain we had with nine inches in a month, uh, in the last three weeks we've had just a shade over one inch of rain in our rain gauges. It's really dried out quickly. But it's funny because at this time of year we have fronts that come through rarely. They're, those are the ones that give us general rains. But we have these pop-up rainstorms. So we hear about three inches of rain in McHenry County or uh, five inches of rain downstate. And here we get nothing. In fact, uh, we keep waiting for it to rain. Uh, we do need water. Uh, these pop-up showers are fine if you're under one, but, you know, if you've lived out in the country, and a lot of our folks have, you, know, you can look out the, from the farmstead. Uh, it's perfectly sunny where you are, and you look a half mile down the road, and it's pouring. Right. That's that's the way it happens. So if you're under one of these storms, fine. But if you're not under one of these storms, we need to do some watering. It seems like only a week or so ago we were talking about the fact that the, gr- the, the ground was so moist and yet people were running their sprinklers. Folks, it's time to run your sprinklers. <laughs> it really is because uh, we're, we're in dire straits in some places. In fact, our trees are wilting like crazy right now. Uh, we do have watering restrictions in our town, so there are only certain times of the day that you can water and only certain days that you can water. But uh, uh, if you have a chance to get out and water, you need to do that. Now, if you're watering your lawn, remember that the trees absorb a lot of that water from the lawn, the water that you put down, but you need to water the trees as well. So if you're out watering your lawn, uh, set the sprinkler so that you cover the area underneath the tree, under the branch spread of the tree, and put down about two inches of moisture. Take a coffee can and set it out there, or a little rain gauge if you have one, and let that run until you have two inches of moisture. Now, I do have some people that I've told to do that, and they said, well, we do that, and the water just runs off. That can happen. When soils get as dry as they are right now, they become what we call hydrophobic. They don't want to wet. That's particularly true in our clay soils. 
If you have a situation like that, turn your sprinkler on and run it until the water just about begins to run off. Turn it off and let it sit for a half hour. That will allow the soil to absorb water and it will swell up. Then it will begin to take water when you begin watering. So that's the, that's the process that's, that's used to, to prevent the problem with runoff because of hydrophobic soils. Water, pre-water for long enough for the water just to begin runoff, turn the water off. Once the water has soaked in and the ground has begun to wet, then you can turn it on and run the rest of your time for your two minutes under trees or your one minute out in the lawn or in the vegetable garden. Anyway, enough of watering. We all know that needs to be done. If you've been under a rainstorm, bless you. If we haven't been, if you haven't been as we haven't, why take care of it on your own. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about plant tending because the garden has been going on for a couple of months now, and weather has taken its toll. First it was too wet, now it's too dry and too hot in some places. So there's stuff that needs to be done. First thing I think about are annuals. You know, one of of the things that go on at this time of year are the... the, uh, uh, demonstra- demonstration gardens at the Botanic Garden, at Morton Arboretum, at some of the seed companies and so forth. These are good places to go and take a look to see what's new in in flower gardening in particular. Uh, there are a lot of new things that are out. Some of them I don't even know the names of them when I look them. I have to look, look at them. I have to go look it up to find out what that is because there's so much new stuff. Anyway, take your, your notebook and your camera and uh, you're going to find there are a lot of other gardeners out there. You can visit with them and pick up some tips on gardening and in particular uh, on the flower gardening because that's what they're out to look at. Incidentally, some of these do have vegetable gardens, uh, um, uh, demonstration gardens. I know down at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, they have a demonstration garden out there. It does have annuals and does have some of the new vegetables as well. Uh, In your garden itself, uh, there's still time to plant some annuals where plants have finished, died off, uh, where they never got started. And there are plants available at garden centers at bargain prices, as a matter of fact. Uh, in the annual gar- in the um, uh, cutting garden, you need to stake up the flowers that are going to be growing on long stems that you want to have nice and straight. Uh, if you tie them up now before they begin to curl, they'll stay straight when you want to cut them. Tie to stakes or, or staple them to a post or a fence, or the cages work just as well, the same cage that you would use for tomatoes. Uh, we mentioned watering water as the plants need it, uh, uh, but be sure that you water early so that the leaves dry off before nightfall. Uh, find, uh, fertilizing at this time of year, if your plants have begun to yellow up because of uh, lack of nitrogen, you might consider putting down some about a pound of uh, something like 10, 10, 10 that would put down one pound of, uh, of nitrogen per thousand square feet or a pound of fertilizer per hundred square feet. The pests in the garden, in fact, I was out uh, yesterday morning looking at my roses. Japanese beetles have arrived. Uh, you don't want to spray for them if you can help them help it. But uh, one nice thing that that's uh, real easy to do with those is take a, a coffee can that's full of soapy water, uh, put it underneath where you see one of these little critters, and just tap it. It will fall in. It pulls up its leg and it will fall in. You can collect them. You can pour them down the toilet or whatever you want to do with them just to get rid of them. If you insist on spraying, seven will work. Uh, weeds, of course, grow no matter what else grows. Get your hoe out when you're walking through your garden and hold the weeds out. Now, in the lawns, we have two things that are showing up right now. First of all, sodworm adults have been flying for about a, a week. These are little tiny moths that fly when you're mowing the lawn. They'll skitter out ahead of you about waist high and tuck down back in the lawn. They're laying eggs as they do that. Um, 
the grubs, the adult grubs, these are the June bugs and May beetles and so forth, are flying as well, and they are also laying eggs. So you need to contend with them also. Now, the sod webworms are going to begin hatching from their eggs in about uh, within 10 days, maybe sooner if it's, uh, if it's, uh, it continues as hot as it is. And you may want, if you've had a lot of problems with those, you might want to put out an insecticide. You can, there's a whole bunch of them available in the, in the uh, garden centers that will kill uh, sod webworms. Grubs take a different type of insecticide. You can put down the merit uh, at this time of year. That works very well, but it doesn't work for the first month. So you need to put it down now knowing that those little critters are going to be up feeding in about a month. The grubs will be feeding in about a month, and they will uh, expire when they get into this. Um, I mentioned trees in the lawn. When you're, if you're doing watering, do pay attention to those trees out there. And if you have newly planted trees, a lot of them have these, these uh, irrigator bags that are on the tree. If your city has put those out or if you have those, be sure that you fill those. They take 20 gallons of water. If you fill them every 10 to 14 days, that's, that's plenty. Uh, keep mowing the grass, even if it's not growing. The weeds do grow, and the seed heads come up, so you want to keep it looking as neat as you can. Anyway, that's a lot of stuff going on. We didn't talk very much about vegetable gardens. Uh, it's the peak of the harvest right now, or should be the peak of the harvest right now. Be sure that you pick uh, when the stuff is at peak of perfection, because that's the reason we grow the, go to all the trouble to grow this stuff. Uh, pick early in the day before the stuff gets heated up, and uh, if you've already pulled out all the things and are finished on tomatoes in some areas or the radishes, pull all these plants out, throw them in the compost heap, and uh, you can also seed second crops in some of these areas. In fact, a couple of weeks ago we started about, uh, talked about starting transplants. Uh, if you've got some of those going, they can be plugged in practically any place in your garden. Anyway, that's, uh, that's essentially it for the, for the gardening right now. Uh, pay attention to this weather and hope that you can get some rain. Uh, I know it's supposed to be showers tonight or today sometime, and, and possibly we'll get some in this coming week. But in the meantime, take care of your plants and make sure they don't suffer from a lack of water. All right, we will do that, and thank you, and we'll look forward to talking to you next week, Jim. You bet. I'll be here. It is 18 minutes after 5 o'clock here on this Saturday morning, and uh, could be another warm day, maybe even hot, but we'll get to that a little bit later. County fair season is underway. Talked about the McHenry County Fair uh, earlier this morning and the Lake County Fair coming up in northern Illinois. And uh, downstate, we have fairs underway. We have fairs in Wisconsin at the moment. And one of the things I really enjoy about county fairs, it gives members of 4-H and FFA an opportunity to show off what they've done throughout the year. So we're going to talk to uh, a lady that I talked to on the phone uh, earlier this week, a delightful lady, 15 years old, and uh, so we'll join her to talk about what county fairs mean to her and her fellow 4-Hers when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. I'm joined on the phone this morning by an outstanding young lady. Her name is Emma Ward. She's 15 years old. She is a 4-H'er. And Emma, I'm going to let you take it from there for a moment. Talk to me about your love of 4-H and your career thus far in 4-H. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I've been in 4-H since I was 8 years old. 
I got started with 4-H because I've been attending the Lake County Fair my whole life, ever since I can remember, and it was always the highlight of my whole summer, and I loved talking to the people about their animals, and I was always so interested in that aspect of it. And when I joined 4-H, I was able to get connected with lots of other people who had those animals and had the knowledge of them. So it's just such a great way to grow your knowledge of everything and anything that you could possibly be interested in and also learn about things that you didn't know you would like. And I found so many things that I've been able to show at the fair and learn about that I wouldn't have been introduced to if it hadn't been for 4-H. And this is my eighth year in 4-H now, and I'm loving it so much. So give me an idea of the various projects, but then tell me about your favorite one, if you would, please. Yeah, of course. Um, I've personally participated in lots of animal um, projects. I have rabbits, poultry, like ducks, turkeys, chickens, um, reptiles. I show my snake at the small pet show, um, swine, dairy goats. Um, I've exhibited projects inside the main building, including displays, informational displays about different animals or other projects. I've done photography. I've done cooking, visual arts, um, which is pretty much anything you create um, with your hands, like painting, um, modeling. I've done scrapbooking. Um, so I'm, getting t- I'm getting tired, Emma. How do you <laughs> find time to do all of this? Well, I'm, I've had the opportunity to actually be homeschooled since I was in middle school, and I really just love that I've had that opportunity because it's enabled me to have a more open schedule to be able to live on a farm and to be able to um, be fully dedicated to my projects and getting to do every single thing that I can be interested in, and it's really been an amazing experience that most people aren't able to have because they're... Um, so busy with so many set schedules and I'm able to have more time to dedicate to my animals which I think just makes it so much more um, impactful when the more time you spend. I get a feeling that goats are your favorite animal project. Now are these breeding meat goats or are they milk goats? Yes, they definitely are my favorite by far. Um, I raise dairy goats so I I don't know if I could do meat goats if I tried. I <laughs> okay. I love them so much. They're my absolute favorite animal and they have amazing personalities, each one of them and I name them all and you know, spend so many hours carefully. I I do breed them, um, because that's how they produce milk and I've been really putting a lot of research into trying to improve the quality of them to make them um able to place better at the fair. Um and be able to have um, a bigger breeding program on a larger level as well. Now, I grew up on a dairy farm in western Wisconsin where we milked cows. I know how to milk cows, but I've never milked a goat. Do you do that by hand, or do you have a machine? Well, some people do it um, by machine, but I have a small enough number of goats where I'm able to do them. My family and I, we milk ours by hand, um, and that's a really a really interesting experience that not many people get to have. So we actually um, do milking demonstrations at the fair and um, when 
people visiting the fair come by, we often get asked to milk the goats, and we love to teach people how to milk and um, get them hands-on experience at doing something they've never done before. Um, and I just love seeing people having so much fun with that because it's it's so easy to take it for granted when I am so used to it. And then just seeing how excited people get about it is just such an amazing experience. You have a great opportunity to educate city people, right? Yeah, definitely. And do you get a lot of interesting questions at the fair? I do. I know for a fact that almost every livestock person I've talked to has had some where they're just shocked that, because a lot of people, um, they, I, I moved to a farm three years ago, and a lot of 4-Hers, they've, it's in their family. Their families have been 4-H for generations, and they've grown up on a farm. And and it's crazy to think that. I mean, it's even hard for me to imagine a time when I didn't have animals in my life, um, even though I didn't grow up with it. So, yeah, I've gotten some crazy questions. We have one breed of goat called a La Mancha that um, has very, they can hear just fine, but they have a very, very small outer ear. So people a lot of times will ask us um, why we cut off their ears, and we can explain to them that, no, they're born that way. It's their breed, and that's really cool to see people, like, fascinated by They didn't know there was a different kind of goat other than, like, a mountain goat and or something like that, and it's just so cool to be able to educate people in that way. So we're getting close to the end of our time here this morning, but uh, what are some of the highlights that people can watch at the Lake County Fair? Can they watch judging of dairy cows and dairy goats and bunnies and all that sort of thing? Um, Yes, they absolutely can. Um, We have, in the mornings, there's shows going on in all of the barns. So there's dairy goat shows, meat goat shows, um, sheep swine, beef, and dairy cows, um, all of that is going on, um, being shown by 4-Hers who are more than willing to answer people's questions about them. Um, There's also all the 4-Hers projects that they've exhibited that are non-livestock, so the things like photography, cooking, any other thing that they can be interested in, those are all in the main building, and people can go by at any time and see those that have been judged before the fair and um, see all the 4-H's hard work that they've put into that. We also have a costume contest that is, I believe, on the last day of, oh, on Thursday um, of the fair, and that is that is probably the most fun thing at the fair, I have to say, is getting to see all the 4-H's. Um, there's a theme and we dress up the animals, and it's just such time, and prize for the best costume and everything and it's just such a fun thing well and then uh, we have about a minute left but county fairs have livestock auctions where the grand champions that 4-h and ffa exhibit are auctioned off great way to help the careers of young people but when will the champion livestock auction take place at the lake county fair um, the auction is Saturday at 2 p.m., and that's when um, fairgoers or people who are interested in um, maybe bringing home an animal can go out, and either way, you're supporting 4-H, you're supporting youth who have put hours and hours of their time and energy and their expertise into raising those animals, um, and they're so well-loved and cared for, and it is just such a great opportunity to 
be able to show your support for them, whether you're interested in purchasing an animal or not. Well, Emma, it's been a joy to talk to you this morning. And again, the dates for the fair are July 24 through 28 at the Lake County Fairgrounds, which are beautiful, relatively new fairgrounds in the Grays Lake area. So we hope a lot of folks will come out and see you. And I'll tell my listeners, when you go into the Dairy Goat Barn, ask for Emma. Is that okay with you, Emma? Absolutely. I'm there all week. We call it our second home, and it's just so much fun to be able to help people learn more about the things that we love. And I know that every 4-H'er feels the same way. Emma Ward, 15-year-old entrepreneur. She'll be at the Lake County Fair, Grays Lake, July 24 through 28. Thank you very much, Roger, at uh, 25 minutes before 6 o'clock here on WGN Radio. Good to have you along this morning. And it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion today talking about keeping county fairs alive and strong. Earlier this year, I asked for your suggestions of subjects to talk about on Samuelson Says, and a lot of you mentioned your concern over the future of county fairs and mentioned challenges like finances to pay the bills as more states are cutting funding to support county fairs, finding volunteers to work ahead of the fair and during the fair to make sure everything goes well, and the competition of other activities that attract fairgoers to other entertainment venues. Well, I want to share with you a story this week of a county fair in southwest Wisconsin that has an even bigger problem, annual flooding, because the fairgrounds are in a floodplain. They sent me photos of the 2019 flood, and the grounds and all the buildings were under at least five feet of water. So the entire fairgrounds must be moved. But let me share with you what this county plans to do, and, well, maybe it'll give you some ideas on how to help the fair in your county. Since flooding is an annual event, The County Livestock Committee started working on the situation three years ago to ensure the future of the fair and other agricultural events in southwestern Wisconsin. They started to look for funding from individuals and companies as well as other sources to move the fair out of the floodplain and build a new fairgrounds. They formed the Southwest Wisconsin Ag Innovation Center Committee And its president, Steve Carpenter, said, Thanks to the generosity of a local farmer, we have the option to purchase 80 acres out of the floodplain area and set us up for a strong future. To purchase the land, create the infrastructure, and complete buildings necessary to host the fair, we will need approximately $3 million. I know that seems like a lot, but we are really out of options to be able to continue hosting a fair for our kids. Well, I've worked with them just a little bit on funding ideas, and not once have I heard anyone say, it's too expensive. We just can't do it. It takes that kind of spirit and attitude to not only save county fairs, but to grow them for our kids and keep this slice of Americana alive 
and growing for the future. My thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Tribune Radio Networks. Max Armstrong standing by to talk markets with Rich Nelson of Allendale when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Rich Nelson from Allendale Incorporated sitting at the mic with us this weekend. Another week in which we had some USDA numbers to look at. Uh, USDA has had a, a way of making farmers very unhappy. Was there any significant uh, reaction when these numbers came out this week? You know, for the most part, uh, we do understand that these numbers are, are half artificial, so to speak. USDA raised new crop corn ending stocks from 1.7 to now 2.0 billion bushels. Uh, this, of course, is with that revised acreage number, no change in yield, and some changes negatively on the old crop demand side. So not a big surprise, but we're all waiting for the realistic numbers in the coming months. Just to clarify, the acreage number stayed the same as it was released in June. That is correct. The June 28th acreage report, yes. Now, coming up in August, that report on that Monday is going to be a very significant one, isn't it? It sure will, especially on the acreage side. We have two uh, important events. Number one, USDA's resurvey efforts of 14 states will be released. Very important issue for us. And also, I would even say even more important than that is the fact we have our first look at crop insurance data being incorporated into these acreage numbers. And that's certainly a very big question for this specific year. Here's an interesting question. We have a tendency to see so many of these significant grain industry reports come out at the end of the week, whether it's Thursday or Friday. A Monday report is not all that common when you're looking at these major potentially market-moving reports. Does that have any impact on the lasting effect of the report? I mean, if you can get that report down on a Friday, you've got a whole weekend to digest the numbers and turn the attention maybe to weather. Uh, Does it make any difference? Max, actually, that's a very good point. And I'm going to say because the timing of this year, not even just on a Monday, but also this report here on August 12th is very important because we're going to have our main eastern Corn Belt states in pollination right in that first and second week of August, a full month uh, later than usual. So we're going to look at probably weather as equal to the USDA reports. Well, now that's an interesting point you make, too. Have you pinpointed a window of seven days to ten days when a high percentage of this corn crop is going to be pollinating how in the world do you get your arms around that with the extreme variability of this corn crop as you drive down the road and you look one field to the next it's all over the place we do our best guess at it and more or less uh the, the statistical measurements we use is a uh, emergence to silking historic uh, historical move which is 51 to 60 days long. So we can be off by nine days, so to speak, off the emergence dates. And if you project anything close to a normal uh, difference between those two numbers or those two dates, you're looking at roughly for Illinois, for instance, August 8th being the peak week of, uh, of, of pollination, so to speak. August 8th. And that, that's in Illinois, you said. That's right. And uh, for instance, Indiana, you're looking at right around that August 7th to August 10th date here. Ohio, even later? Uh, no doubt about that, yes. You're looking at about, I believe, August 14th for Ohio. <laughs> you remember that right off the top of your head, don't you? Now, what about Iowa and Nebraska? I'm going to test you. No, on this one, I'm a little late here because these uh, western Corn Belt states are, are maybe a bit more normal, so to speak, right. than the eastern Corn Belt side. So you're looking at the last week of July for most of these western Corn Belt states. But if there's above normal temperature in those areas, as you could easily imagine, now, normal temperatures in August are going to be hot. 
But if you if you put above normal in there, as some private weather forecasters are, that's not a good scenario for yields, is it? Yes, and here's the numbers behind that. For instance, uh, if you're looking at let's say an an 88 percent or excuse me an 88 daily high in these specific weeks, as just an example, if you have a four degree higher than normal pollination, you're looking at another yield cut of about three to five percent. So in this case of either a stage one or stage two level of above normal temps, you're already cutting off yields even more than we're talking about from USDA. On, on the August 12th numbers. Okay, so here we are trying to talk the yield down and uh, and sounding like a farmer trying to talk the price up. And the reality <laughs> is this market has defied that opportunity to uh, to have somebody try to talk these prices higher. It's It's been very difficult to get any kind of a rally and sustain it. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think this is going to set up uh, very similar to these other high moisture years, this uh, 95 and 93 comparison, for instance, where you had a rising market into, uh, into harvest. So, yes, we've had our struggles. We're still going to wait another full month to get even more bullish information to get this market restarted. But as it stands right now, all the good information is and bullish information is still going to be in that fourth quarter. A rising market into harvest. And, and harvest is is going to be a moving target. I mean, when will these crops come to harvest? Of course, we don't know. This weather scenario has to play out. Have you made projections yet on that? And we sure have. So for, uh, traditionally, if we're looking at, let's say, a nationwide harvest of uh, in the peak week, let's say the second or third week of October, in this case, you are looking at November, especially for the eastern Corn Belt states, being peak weeks. So yes, we're looking at all these issues right now, not even discussing the frost risk, which some uh, weather forecasters have mentioned in the past couple weeks. Now, typically in most years, the last significant production estimate for a crop prior to the final numbers in January comes in November. Have you heard if USDA would be uh, of a mind to have another survey and do something in December? I, in this case, I don't think they will. I think they'll have, a, in their point of view, a best guess as of November, which is really more or less an October number, so to speak, and they'll, make, and they'll have to wait till January to get us a big number. Uh, we've been watching the development of tropical moisture here. A shot of tropical moisture coming up the Mississippi Valley, coming up through the Delta region into a uh, Potentially parts of the Corn Belt here. This is unusual timing, and we've seen in the past you get a good shot of moisture in the month of August from a tropical event of some sort. My oh my, what a difference it can make to soybean yields. Is it your feeling that if this does shove up into the Corn Belt, a significant area of the Corn Belt, it could enhance corn yields? It could. Here's what's really interesting about that, though, especially with soybeans where you have a more or less a fixed date of blooming, a fixed date of, of pod set, so to speak, which is, of course, different than corn. In this case, if you're still looking at a small plant as we're going into the reproductive phase, uh, the above normal moisture effect may not be as strong, positive to yields as historical. Uh, a big question on the corn side is with our heavy moisture uh, laden fields in the eastern corn belt specifically uh, the fact that 80 percent of, of roots are in the first 18 inches of this ground uh, that might not be as positive as it normally would be shallow shallow roots yes yes which in this case might not be a, a positive thing we haven't talked about wheat did usda do any significant adjusting in that report this week for wheat they didn't do anything major of course they did lower the crop a little bit here as far as the uh, the uh, the current 2019 crop so as it stands right now we're still on the wheat side we're still taking our cues from the big issues on corn uh, other issues you we can discuss of course is mixed uh, uh, performance crop out of uh, eu and russia uh, specifically from usda's numbers people suggest they may have to drop their numbers maybe by one million ton at best on the russian side well, as you take a look at this whole scenario in terms of what we're doing with demand and the exports that are going on, 
exports are still not impressive, are they? Uh, no, here's the here's the problem with this. Uh, going into today's report, before USDA's report, uh, corn export sales, we needed 288 million bushels of additional corn exports in the coming weeks. Only eight weeks left of the marketing year. Last year, we had 91 million bushels in during this time. So, yes, USDA cut 100 off this number. It's likely there's another cut coming in the com- uh, future reports. The world isn't concerned about corn supplies right now, apparently. Not 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 aggressively, especially considering the fact we have this record crop out of South America, which they are active uh, active sellers of, of right now here. The fund trader, the funds, they are so key to what happens here. And of course, the agriculture commodity markets do not operate in a vacuum. What are you watching otherwise that that might? Uh, affect the performance of these big fund players. Let's talk, let's talk about that from two separate a- angles here. Number one, on the fund side, uh, they have been moderate buyers, of course, on the corn side and soybean side in recent weeks, certainly positive for us and good news. Uh, one concern for us is about their general interest in commodities as a whole, especially with the lack of movement on the uh, crude oil side, uh, the fact that many of these guys are saying that without inflation, we don't have that extra punch, so to speak, of needed buying. And the equities? Still look pretty good. Boy, good place to true. park park some money, it appears. It's certainly true. And with the Fed now talking maybe lower interest rates in the coming uh, coming months, uh, that could add a little more juice, so to speak, to the equity side of things here. We appreciate the visit, as always, Rich. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Appreciate it. There. Rich Nelson with Allendale. Well, before Max walks out of the studio, let's put him back to work here for just a few minutes with our weekly look at crop conditions. So, Max, your turn again. We appreciate the chance to learn each weekend from the technical service representatives of BASF out there in the field checking on crops and advising producers. Kurt Martins joins us this weekend. Kurt, I understand you're there near the home of the Western Illinois University Leathernecks this weekend. That's right. Checking out fields, uh, looking at some weeds, finding a little bit of disease in the corn here. So it's, uh, it's happening here this week. It's that kind of a year with all the moisture out. Now, it's shut off a little bit here. And what does that suggest as some folks have moved into a drier period? I know it's always dangerous to generalize across the broad sweep of the Midwest where folks might be listening to us. But we know of quite a few farmers who say the faucet turned off and now they're actually kind of wondering about needing some moisture. Yeah, we're... We're, uh, we're, we've got a forecast now that seems to be kind of jumping around on us a little bit. But, you know, we, we do have, or the last couple of weeks, I'm picking up on, on disease, and fungal disease in our corn in the form of, of gray leaf spot, and common rust, a couple other diseases. But the gray leaf is the one that concerns me the most because we're seeing it now right before this corn is starting to tassel. So our April planted corn just getting ready to start to tassel, make corn is not too far behind it. So we've got the disease there. Uh, even if it turns off maybe a little bit dry, if we continue to get rains, any bit, any little bit of rain or high relative humidity, that disease is just going to continue to grow. So our recommendation is to, to get out there, and, and when the corn does get to VT, we're going to start treating these, these cornfields with the headline ale. Depending on where the producers are listening to us, they may be getting a good shot of tropical moisture here as we look into the new week. You never know, and that could in, then enhance that opportunity for a disease to uh, be fostered in those corn plants, then, huh? Yeah, sure is, sure is. Well, it's just it's just hard to hard to know what to, what's going to happen with uh, this uh, tropical depression that's coming up from the south. But uh, either way, our crop's going to keep keep moving along. 
and uh, we got to keep on dealing with the pests that we're seeing out there. We really have a challenge, do we not, because of the variability of crop size this year. I mean, that's one thing that you really notice driving down the road, and you hear from producers as well. So the the grower really has to stay alert over a, a wider range of days and weeks this summer and uh, be out there scouting, correct? Yeah, that's, it's very important to keep on scouting these fields, like you said, with the different planting dates. I mean, that really changes the way we look for our pests because, like, for example, this early planted corn is now silking. That's really going to draw the insects, like the Japanese beetles, to the silks, whereas our later planted corn will be the magnet for those pests here in another month. So, again, it's, it's real important that we keep on scouting for these pests and having to make adjustments as we go. And at this stage of the game, we still have to be thinking about weed control in, in some areas and some crops, don't we? You bet. We're, most most retailers and growers that I've talked to, they've just finished up spraying corn, even the later planted corn, and they're focusing on getting the, the beans treated, both with Ingenia or Liberty. And having great, great weed control, we've had some great weather for getting the beans sprayed. Guys are knocking out a lot of acres, so, so that's good, because our, obviously our weeds are getting pretty big on us right now, so it's time to get that done. The drier weather really did help, didn't it? And uh, the ability to get out, get those sprayers into the fields, and uh, to take care of the needed weed control. Yeah, we we definitely needed to get that break. Uh, yeah, we haven't had a lot of breaks this this season for a lot of areas, but we finally got that break to to get some of these applications done in in, in a somewhat timely manner. Uh, so it's it's been a it's been a sigh of relief to to get that done. We sure appreciate it. Hope you have a great weekend, Kurt. Thanks. You bet. Kurt Martin's technical service representative with BASF. Three minutes before 6 o'clock news time here on the Saturday morning show, I was saddened this week to read the obituary of Henry Riggs of Highland, Indiana. Henry Riggs was the drummer. For those of you who remember Lino Frigo and the musical wheels at county fairs and state fairs uh, on the country fair show and the noon show, Henry was the drummer on the musical wheels band, got to know him very well. He was from an Italian family, so instead of introducing him as Henry Riggs, I always enjoyed introducing him as his uh, Italian family, Enrico Scardosi Guidotti, and he was 96 years old, played with us, I think, 17 years on the Musical Wheels Band, Henry Riggs, Highland, Indiana. And the other thing I want to mention, it's Air Orion Day. We'll be taking off at about 9 o'clock this morning, flying to Viroqua International Airport in Vernon County, Wisconsin. It's reunion weekend for the Samuelson family and the all-class reunion of Ontario High School where I graduated. I won't tell you how many years ago, but it's reunion time, and so we're going to hope that uh, the rains and the storms of the hurricane will not reach into the Midwest at least until we get back Sunday afternoon, but we're looking forward to flying up there today. First trip we've taken for a while on Air Orion, and so far it sounds like the weather is going to be pretty good. Not only was it a record-setting week on Wall Street, we ended the week with some pretty good gains in the grain market. The December 
corn contract up 11 and three quarters cents yesterday. And the new crop November soybeans up 14 and a quarter cents. And lean hogs at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange recorded the biggest one-week climb since April with the uh, October lean hog contract gaining 65 cents a hundredweight yesterday, or I should say a dollar 65 cents yesterday. October live cattle up 65 cents yesterday. As always, we appreciate your company here on the Saturday morning show. We thank you for joining us. Our thanks to uh, Bob Ferguson, the engineer who makes all of the magic happen. And uh, we'll be back with you again next week. And we always look forward to it. Chicago Stories, told 24-7 on 720 WGN Chicago. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.